We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to episode 373 of the Win in Six podcast, proudly a part of the Eurostep Podcast Network and the Blue Wire Podcast family. I'm your host, Adam McGee, and join me as always, it's my good friend, Jordan Tresky. Jordan, hello. How are you doing? Hello. I have a cold, so I apologize for people listening to someone that has a cold on a podcast. <laughs> uh, that's okay. It's probably it's not. Um, we've been there. We've done a lot of episodes. You've definitely had colds before. I've had colds before. So we'll fight through it. We appreciate you here soldiering on uh, in the name <laughs> of Milwaukee Books Podcasting. The books are back in action since you last heard from us, and they opened up their preseason account with a narrow loss to the Memphis Grizzlies on Saturday, I believe it was, um, in a game that. We'll we'll talk a little bit about some of the things that came out of it of substance later, but for the most part, there's not really a whole lot to take from it. This is preseason basketball, and maybe the only thing more meaningless than preseason basketball is early preseason basketball, where very much a mix and match approach for the books. Obviously, no Giannis, and when the game got away from them late in the fourth quarter, uh, the books looked very different than they're likely to ever look throughout the upcoming NBA season. So with that, attention uh, focuses on what's up next for the Bucks, And the Bucks have gone on their travels. They are overseas. 
and they're in Abu Dhabi, the United Arab Emirates, for a series of two games with the Atlanta Hawks as part of the NBA's Global Games Initiative. This year, I believe the NBA's Global Games Initiative is centered around these Abu Dhabi games in preseason, um, plus there will be reg a regular season game in Mexico City, and I think it's the Pistons and Bulls playing in Paris as well. Um, the Mexico City game involves the San Antonio Spurs. I can't remember the other opponent, but Thanks. it's yes, I think you're right. I think you're right. It's become pretty commonplace for the NBA over the years. Um, it's become a staple of the calendar. Books fans have certainly had their share of experiences of the team going overseas. But in saying that, there hasn't been a trip this team has made that has been quite like this one. From the moment this game was announced, it has been accompanied by kind of larger conversations and controversies over the human rights records of the United Arab Emirates and where so much of this really doesn't factor into what we would normally talk about on this podcast or what we want to talk about on this podcast. It's something we've given quite a bit of thought to. And I'll be honest in saying from the moment it was announced, I, I began to think of how are we going to cover these games? How are we going to talk about it? The answer to that is we will talk about them from a basketball perspective. When you next hear from us, we'll probably be looking back at these games. Any key takeaways that come from them, they'll be discussed from there. The same will apply elsewhere on the Eurostep Podcast Network feed, where Ty and Rowan will be doing the same. But what we also felt was really, really critical is to not ignore some of the wider conversations going on around this. Um, essentially, to, to give everyone a chance to go into these games informed in what I hope is a very concise way about what some of the key questions and concerns are surrounding Abu Dhabi and the UAE, and also why this is relevant to the books. Because while there are a whole long litany of issues we could talk about here, there are quite a few that are kind of central to core values that the Milwaukee books have championed in recent years that the NBA takes real pride in championing. And they are culturally kind of the antithesis of how things are in the UAE. Um, situation there is complicated. There's no doubt about that. It is evolving. There has been progress made in terms of the work being done to achieve greater equality, to achieve a much more respectable human rights record. But another factor that has come into discussion and one we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about shortly is a key driver for, I guess, projecting the best face of Abu Dhabi, the best face of UAE in the wider Western world has become sports and targeting big sports events. And this is going to fall squarely under that remit. And there will be kind of a very bland official line that we're likely to hear from the books in the NBA for a whole variety of reasons. But to us, it's important that when you're watching this game, you just have some context for what's going on beyond that. So we're going to take a little bit of a detour from what we usually do. We're going to talk a little bit about the situation in Abu Dhabi and the UAE and specifically how that relates to the Milwaukee books and so many of the issues and causes that have been so central to the good that they have looked to do in the community in recent years. So without further ado, hope you take a listen with an open mind and we'll talk a little bit more about all this in a few minutes time. 
As the Milwaukee Bucks continue their preparations for the new regular season, they find themselves overseas representing their league, the state of Wisconsin, and the United States. There's nothing unusual about that, as when the Bucks take on the Atlanta Hawks on Thursday, it'll be the franchise's fifth time playing on foreign soil. In 2008, after the conclusion of the Olympic Games, the Bucks faced the Warriors in a pair of preseason games in China, while Milwaukee also participated in regular season action against the Knicks in London and Hornets in Paris in 2015 and 2020, respectively. This time will be a little different, though, as it represents a first. When the Bucks and Hawks take to the court at Gas Island's Etihad Arena, it'll be the first time the NBA has taken its global game series to the United Arab Emirates, and specifically its capital, Abu Dhabi. The NBA has officially described the game as, quote, an important milestone in the NBA and basketball's global growth, end quote. That sentiment was further shared by Bucks president Peter Fagan, whose statement for the game's announcement read, quote, we are honored to be selected to participate in the NBA's first games in the United Arab Emirates. As the NBA continues to expand globally, we look forward to visiting Abu Dhabi and furthering the league's goals of inspiring people through basketball, end quote. The idea of growing the game is a laudable one and has been core to the NBA's mission for some time now. The case could be made that it has even helped to reshape the league to the point where three of its biggest superstars, Nikola Jokic, Luka Doncic, and the Bucks' own Giannis Antetokounmpo, all hail from overseas. But any analysis of the markets where NBA growth, and indeed potential for further growth, is at its greatest, doesn't exactly point to Abu Dhabi as the most logical host venue for a global games contest in 2022. So why the UAE? And why, for many, has that choice been deemed to be controversial? For the Bucks players and fans, Thursday's game will be just one very brief and likely forgettable pit stop as they aim to navigate the gauntlet of the upcoming NBA season. Some may not even watch a preseason game with an 11am central time tip on a Thursday, and some will tune in, take in the basketball, and then move on. Whichever path you choose, I'd argue it's essential to take just a few minutes to consider the wider discussion, concerns, and controversy that surround the role that sports is increasingly playing in the state's global image. From there, you're free to form your own opinion, but the bigger picture undoubtedly demands attention. Beyond the various sound bites that will emerge from these flying visits, there have been countless accounts of what life is like in the region that paint a troubling picture. According to Human Rights Watch's 2022 report in the United Arab Emirates, Quote, UAE authorities continue to invest in a soft power strategy aimed at painting the country as a progressive, tolerant, and rights-respecting nation. End quote. As a result, the likes of Abu Dhabi and Dubai continue to become increasingly popular venues for international sports events, and major organizations such as Formula One, the UFC, the DP World Tour, and ATP World Tour. The NBA and Milwaukee Bucks now join those ranks. Most notably of all, Premier League club Manchester City have been controlled by City Football Group since 2008, a holding company owned by Sheikh Mansour, who is the UAE's Deputy Prime Minister, brother of UAE President MBZ, and a member of Abu Dhabi's ruling family. While sports continue to help to promote an image of UAE to the wider world that aligns with the government's aims, a multitude of concerns continue to surround both the state's foreign policy actions and their track record and human rights for those residing in and visiting the state. Amnesty International's 2022 report in the UAE noted, quote, the government continued to commit serious human rights violations, including arbitrary detention, cruel and inhuman treatment of detainees, suppression of freedom of expression, 
in violation of the right to privacy, end quote. From the perspective of the Bucks and the NBA choosing to play in Abu Dhabi, it's worth noting just how far removed simple values such as freedom of speech, the right to protest, equal rights for women, and support for the LGBT community are from the everyday reality for those living in the UAE. When it comes to women's rights, the UAE has been vocal about the progress and reforms they've made with a view towards greater equality. Chief among those reforms being the removal of legal defense for what were termed as quote-unquote honor killings, i.e. shorter sentences for men guilty of killing a female relative if said relative was found to be having an extramarital affair, and the decriminalization of consensual extramarital affairs more broadly. In stark contrast, Human Rights Watch has highlighted that a woman's marriage still requires the approval of a male guardian, and women require a court order for divorce while men can obtain one unilaterally. Further to that, it's still lawful for a woman to be quote-unquote chastised in the form of physical violence by her husband, and a woman does not have the right to refuse sexual relations with her husband without a lawful excuse, essentially permitting marital rape. Other shortcomings include the requirement of marriage certificates to register children, meaning that not only is it difficult for unmarried pregnant women to receive adequate health care or maternity insurance cover, but that it can lead to complications for the children in terms of their own status as citizens. An extension of that is the fact that children born to Emirati fathers are automatically entitled to citizenship, while those born to Emirati mothers and foreign fathers are not. Earlier this year, the United Nations Committee on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women concluded after a five-year investigation that the UAE should be commended for achieving significant gender balance in politics, but continue to raise significant questions about healthcare services for women and support for victims of trafficking. When it comes to the LGBT community, non-heterosexual sexual relations are prohibited in the UAE. As the UAE has looked to position itself in a more prominent position of influence with the more progressive West, it's worth noting that it has become one of the more liberal Gulf states, even if that remains relative. What that means in a country that continues to criminalize homosexuality is that the anecdotal evidence from Abu Dhabi and Dubai suggests a policy of don't ask, don't tell has come to the fore. Additionally, Human Rights Watch has noted that a 2020 amendment to the UAE's penal code means that what was previously a minimum sentence of six months imprisonment for a, quote, flagrant and decent act, end quote, now equates to a fine in the region of $270,000 to $13,000. Repeat offences can then lead to three months imprisonment or a fine of up to $27,000. In practice, ambiguity still exists between the UAE's federal penal code and Sharia law, both of which can be applied for homosexual acts. In theory, the latter opens the possibility of flogging and even the death penalty. According to a 2020 report from the US Department of State, there have been no reports of arrests or prosecutions for consensual same-sex conduct in the UAE since 2015. The situation differs greatly for transgender people or those who engage in cross-dressing though. For Human Dignity Watch, there have been multiple instances of visitors being arrested and in some cases imprisoned for wearing quote, clothing deemed inappropriate for one's sex, and foreign residents have been deported for this reason, end quote. U.S. Department of State reports have also noted that LGBT organizations do not operate openly in the UAE, nor are pride marches or gay rights events held. More recently, the Financial Times reported in September on changes to the code of conduct for teachers stating that they must, quote, refrain from discussing gender identity, homosexuality, or any other behavior deemed unacceptable to UAE society, end quote. That adds to the UAE joining with other Gulf states to demand that Netflix remove shows depicting homosexuality or any other elements deemed as, quote, un-Islamic. 
Of course, at the heart of these issues is the continued lack of freedom of expression in the UAE. Amnesty International's 2021 report on the country detailed that, quote, at least 26 prisoners remain behind bars because of their peaceful political criticism, end quote, while the government maintains tight control over expression. In short, Reporting that's critical of the state or offers an opinion contrary to state guidelines can lead to significant legal problems for residents of the UAE. Amnesty offered as an example that, quote, when NGOs and journalists reported the arbitrary detention of hundreds of African nationals, the Ministry of Interior called the media not to circulate or disseminate any information not published by the relevant authorities, end quote. Human Rights Watch also declared that, quote, scores of activists, academics, and lawyers are serving lengthy sentences in UAE prisons, following unfair trials and vague and broad charges that violate their rights to free expression and association, end quote. Even more sobering is the allegation made by MENA rights group that enforced disappearances have been on the rise in the state and that the practice, quote, seeks to target and silence dissenting voices, particularly those of human rights defenders, journalists and lawyers who have publicly criticized government policies, end quote. The conversation around freedom of expression has only come into greater focus with the plight of migrant workers. The subject of migrant workers in the region more generally has been in the global spotlight in recent years due to reports from The Guardian on the demise of up to 4,000 migrant workers in the construction of stadiums for the FIFA World Cup in Qatar. In the UAE, particular attention has been drawn to the construction that has taken place on what could be best termed as luxurious leisure islands. In 2013, an investigation by The Observer reported that many workers on Sadiat, or Happiness, Island were part of an, quote, employment system trapping thousands of laborers on poverty pay, end quote. Home to a Louvre, an NYU campus, and a Guggenheim museum, Abu Dhabi's cultural hub was at least in part constructed by many migrant workers who alleged they were brought to Abu Dhabi from Africa and the Middle East with promises of high wages, only to find lower wages greeting them and restrictive laws keeping them in place for fear of arrest for abscondment and denial of their passports. On occasions when protests took place, mass deportations were reported to have followed. On Yas Island, where the books will play, a 2016 report from The Independent detailed how men were being recruited in Africa by a construction firm offering £770 sterling per month, plus good accommodation, medical insurance and a food allowance, only to be paid just £212 per month, including a travel and accommodation allowance once they arrived in Abu Dhabi. All of this paints a picture that runs in stark contrast to so much about the books and the NBA have championed about themselves in recent years. It cannot reasonably be expected that it fall to athletes or sports to counter all of the world's injustices. But the minimum that can be asked is that there's a consistency in its messaging and in what and who it cares about. As an organization, the books have taken great pride in the elevation of women to roles of prominence within the franchise whether that's been in coaching, support staff, broadcasting, or business positions. The books hold an annual Pride Night, a Pfizer forum, and have also supported the LGBT community by participating in the Milwaukee Pride Parade as recently as this June. The books, from both a player and leadership perspective, were both vocal and visible in protesting in the aftermath of George Floyd's killing and the shooting of Jacob Blake, the latter of which led to a highly publicized boycott of a playoff game driven by Milwaukee's players. And of course, the face of the franchise, and increasingly one of the league's foremost stars, was once an African migrant himself. As undocumented youths in Greece, Giannis Antetokounmpo and his brother and teammate Thanasis 
were discriminated against due to their migrant status and severely limited in terms of the employment opportunities available to them. To take a good faith view of the NBA's mission with this game and the progress, albeit painfully slow, that has been made in recent years in the UAE, perhaps it's possible for the Bucks and co to roll into town, spread their values of equality along with a love for the game of basketball and help to spur change. For that to take place though, the NBA's representatives in the UAE will have to talk as they would the rest of the year back home in the US. Concerningly, from the moment the game was announced, messaging has aligned more closely with that of the UAE. As just one small example, the official press releases from the books and the NBA describe this game as not only the first to ever be played in the UAE, but the first to be played in the Arabian Gulf. That term is one of great contention and a real flashpoint in the Middle East. Both the United States and the UN officially designate the region as the Persian Gulf, the name that has been predominant in history dating back to 5 BC. A movement from Arab nations since the mid-20th century has pushed to claim the nomenclature for their own and led to the current juncture where one label is considered deeply offensive in Iran and the other is deeply offensive to the likes of Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Just like that, in something as simple as a press release to announce a basketball game, the NBA waded into the vastly complicated geopolitics of the Middle East. As Jim Azarski of the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel detailed on Monday, the books arrived in the UAE just as the nations negotiated truce with neighboring Yemen, which had been in place since April, had expired. Allegations of torture and unlawful attacks in Yemen have been the latest alleged human rights violation to garner significant international attention and scrutiny for the UAE. And if the NBA needs any reminder of just how precarious the situation can be for a high-profile sporting event in the region at present, they need look no further than when Yemeni rebels struck an oil depository in Saudi Arabia just 10 miles from the site of its Formula One race back in March. The situation in the UAE is immensely complicated. The NBA can't have the answers. But they have put their players in a position where they may well be questioning issues that are better suited to diplomats than athletes. Given the fallout that came from comments from within the league in relation to China in recent years, their willingness to put an NBA personnel in that position once again is puzzling on its face. If there's an explanation for it, perhaps it's a detail found a few paragraphs into that official press release announcing this game, where it was revealed that, quote, the partnership also sees the Department of Culture and Tourism Abu Dhabi under Visit Abu Dhabi, the tourism promotion initiative of the UAE's capital city, serve as the official tourism destination partner of the NBA in the Middle East, North Africa, Europe, and China. End quote. When the Bucks take to the court against the Hawks, basketball will take center stage, as it always does. But on the whole, this trip is about more than that. The bare minimum that anyone can do in its lead-up and its aftermath is to acknowledge that, and discuss it openly. If all parties are serious about their goals for growth, transparency offers up the quickest path toward that positive change. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. 
Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You know, if I would have applied myself, I could have gone to the NBA. You think so? Yeah, I think so. But it's just like, it's been done. You know, I didn't want to, I was like, I don't want to be a follower. Hi, I'm Jason Concepcion. And I'm Shea Serrano. And we are back. We have a new podcast from Wondery. It's called Six Trophies. Woo! And it's the f-ing best. Each week, Shea Serrano and I are combing through all the NBA storylines, finding the best, most interesting, most compelling stories, and then handing out six pop culture themed trophies for six basketball related activities. Trophies like the Dom- Dominic Toretto, I live my life a quarter mile at a time trophy, which is given to someone who made a short-term decision with no regard for future consequence. Or the Christopher Nolan Tenet trophy, which is given to someone who did something that we didn't understand. Catalina Wine Mixer trophy. Ooh, the Lauren Hill, you might win some, but you just lost one trophy. And what's more, the NBA playoffs are here, so you want to make Six Trophies your go-to companion podcast through all the craziness. Follow Six Trophies on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Okay, Jordan. Having taken all that in, having listened to me um, talk at length, I'm, I'm not not great at being super concise. By my standards, that was very punchy. Where are you at on the book's involvement in these games? Or even if you want to zoom out further on the NBA's involvement? Because I think one of the things that is <laughs> central to me, it's central to the conversation we're having here and even my thought process while researching and writing for that is um, we all have become familiar with the kind of refrains where people ask for politics to be kept out of sports. Yet it was not you or I that decided to insert them into this particular game. That was a choice made by the NBA in terms of choosing Abu Dhabi as a place where they wanted to stage global games this year. And to what extent, I don't know, but the books are involved. I don't know if there is a yes or no, if you're told where you're going, when, when it's your turn. I can't comment on that. But one way or another, the NBA has decided to go to Abu Dhabi to spread the the gospel of basketball this year. And the books are at center. So how does that make you feel as a Milwaukee native, as a books fan? Um, It's clearly... uh... A conflicted response because you can usually just sure there are some people that will go into all this and as you said there are two preseason games we'll see how we'll see if marjan bochamp plays we'll see the guys play it's like there's no skin off or your back kind of thing of like just watching the games and not taking in what the significance means and why the nba are having these games in the first place where they are. Um, the fact that these are the first games in the Persian Gulf and it's one of the teams represented by it um, features one of the biggest faces in the NBA and one of the biggest stories that the NBA champions <laughs> um, with Giannis 
I think that's where specifically it gets a little messy. To say as, in, as in the profile of this, you're saying is different by the book's participation, for example, than it is in sending the Pistons and Bulls to Paris this year. Yes. Yeah, it's a lot different than just being like, you know, Kate Cunningham's the, the next rising star. Yeah. You know, I think it's the thing about Giannis's story that I'm going to be making this point and also contradicting myself by making this point is that because he came from the background that he did, he had very little, and then it mushers into this crazy rags to riches story that is all made possible possible by being drafted by the Bucks and going into the NBA and all the hoops that his him and his family had to jump through just to become, you know, just to get into the country, just because just to be recognized by their own country, their adopted country, to to go through all of that and having these striking similarities between the people that are being wronged against in this particular region of Abu Dhabi and the United Arab Emirates. And the during the broadcast and during during the games that Giannis is going to be looked at as this hero. And this is what can be, you know, you can become um, if you put your mind to it and all this stuff. And then it's like, it just cuts in the face of like what he's come through and all this stuff and be used as this, political tool which is not it's not that that hasn't happened before but i think it's you see it more directly with the league and you're seeing more directly with where they want to grow the game and where they want to have established their footprint in this particular region of the world and it just makes it look all slimy (laughs) to say the least on top of everything else and that's just the Giannis element. The Bucks element is that we, since the ownership has come into play eight plus years ago, getting close to 10 years ago, they've been very forward thinking they've been, you know, hosting Pride Nights. They've been, I mean, in a couple of weeks, they are hosting Pfizer Forum to for an open voting. And you can early, you know, go there for early voting and all that stuff. So about human rights and, and, and what we are able to do in this country and all that stuff. And what, you know, you can easily take it for granted. I certainly did when I was younger and thought everything was bullshit. <laughs> um, again, it's just like, you, it's just the whiplash effect of like, that is what's going on in our like region and what they're trying to do here. And, you know, establish themselves as a model organization for everybody to have a piece of, or I don't know. And then, as you said, we have no idea in in this process of, is it just a lottery ticket that you just be like, okay, we're the ones that are going, you draw straws and like, are we going to play preseason games overseas or whatever it is? And you just kind of go along for the ride, which I honestly think that's more of what it is. Like, okay, you have no choice in the matter. This is where you're going to be playing. And then We'll figure it out from there. But again, it's just like, it's all the contradictory stuff of what the organization preaches and what they try to set out as 
they have done for the last eight years to be playing this game is not it's 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 just kind of flies in the face of it a little bit and granted this is five days of you're gonna be hearing a lot of them play in Abu Dhabi and just what it's like to be there and blah 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 blah. Which it's come back. It's supposedly great. Like if you're from the West and you've got money and you're going there for a visit, like I have no doubt these players are gonna live a week in the lap of luxury and have pretty glowing things to say about it. And that's that's fine. Like I, I do think something I want to get across here is the complexity of it, which is it does very much seem to be a nation in flux. Part of parts of that are cultural and what's bedded in through religion and what's difficult to change and what's easy to change. And um, parts of that are certainly motivated by financial desires in terms of wanting to position themselves as a more influential power within the Western world. One of the easiest ways to do that is sports. It's like um, if religion was once the opiate of the masses, it is sports. It is very much, if you want to get to people all across the world, you do so through sports. And as we'll touch on briefly um, in a few minutes, no one has understood that and done that as successfully as Abu Dhabi. Uh, that is something that they were maybe the earliest of adopters with, and they have done so with great, great success. I, I think two things can be true, though. So, for example, I don't want to be dismissive of the idea of Yanis going there as a hero figure and inspiring young kids, inspiring people who live in Abu Dhabi, developing this love for basketball. And that kind of very storybook growing of the game that is the stuff of press releases and that is the very surface level, here is why we go to a place. I think that's valuable. When you're going to a place, though, where there are greater concerns against things that, for example, if they were to come to the fore, as times they have in recent years, um, in a given state within the US, the league would be vocal about it. They would take action based upon it. Players would speak out. I don't know what level of knowledge expertise players have on the various human rights concerns or the foreign policy or anything related to Abu Dhabi and it's not their job they're not required to do so I assume they have also though been briefed on some element of that because this is a powder keg situation where if someone says or does the wrong thing it could become a storyline for all of the wrong reasons and in the aftermath of Daryl Morey's comments about China and some of LeBron's comments in the aftermath of that and what that did to the NBA's relationship with China, which, yes, that is an entirely utter conversation that we could have a long and lengthy podcast about all of the issues with that at that time and the complications with the current place the league relationship with China sits in. I am genuinely surprised that they are they are willing to put players in this spot. I think it's very complicated. And if the kind of the easy route of let's play a basketball game and let's spread happiness and love through this game that we all adore and let's bring about some sort of greater changes in the UAE is the mission, which often comes up with stuff like this. It's like, well, why not go there? And it's almost an outreach trip. It's like, we're showing you what we have, but we're also 
we want to share our ideas through this thing that is kind of culturally core to us, important to us, that has, uh, I guess, a very diverse and universal face now. Like it's harder than ever to pinpoint what the NBA looks like demographically. It is no longer purely about American. It is no longer purely about black and white. The league is growing into something that is much more culturally diverse and, in my opinion, more interesting as a result of that. Mm -hmm. So I think you can bring that product there and have a real meaningful impact. But to do that, you also need to not completely ignore not just the elephant in the room, but the multiple elephants in the room. And that's what's going to happen here. And we're going to have really mismanaged communication, which I mean, is an issue that I think I've had with the books on multiple things in the past, but right from the announcement of this game, the Persian Gulf versus Arabian Gulf, like that may have come from the NBA messaging and that may have come from the UAE messaging. That may have come from, we now have a commercial agreement with Visit Abu Dhabi and their request is we're going to call this the Arabian Gulf. What does that mean for growth of the game in Iran? Again, complicated discussion to have over whether the NBA should be targeting growth of the game in Iran, whether you should care about that. But you're opening up just this tangled web with this game that is unnecessary, in, in my opinion. Like the ideal world of let's democratize the game and we go to all of these different places and we give everyone a chance to soak in the product is great. I I speak as someone whose only experience of going and sampling the NBA has been in London, has been at a global games. And there is no doubt about the impact that can have. There's also though, and I think I've spoken about this many times in the pod in the past, those events are kind of terrible. They suck. They're not about getting real fans in the building. They tend to be packed out with people who, uh, have the money to pay for very expensive tickets for a night out increasingly powerful people influencers celebrities um there was a year where i managed to secure very very good tickets and myself and my friends we were down in floor seats and we were literally just surrounded by footballers like where courtside it's all primarily players at top clubs three or four rows back where i found myself it's like oh just like the backup goalkeeper for this mid-table team is sitting right beside me. And it's at, at what point are you actually getting your product to the people who are going to become the diehard fans who are going to lead to real growth and real opportunity. So I am curious to see just what kind of crowd we get. Is it openly something that seems like the rich and powerful? It's taking place on an island, which is, you know, home to only 8,000 residents and yet this is an arena that is going to hold 18,000 people so I think in its own right that speaks to some of the, the challenges that are going to come there but in talking about all of this it's it's kind of it's it's going right into a subject that I, I'll be honest I've grown very tired of because through my love of football or soccer to most of you listening in the Premier League I've spent years at this point years listening to having to think about the topic of sports watching and it was only in the run-up to this game that i realized sports watching is really like if if in america if you were someone who wasn't following 
soccer in Europe. I don't know what the level of familiarity with it as a term would be because the major leagues in the US, the teams are still largely owned by American billionaires, or if you're the Milwaukee Brewers, a millionaire. Um, and there is still something in a lot of cases tied to local community. If it's not, you get a situation like, say, the books have, where you could have rich venture capitalists from a big city like New York or, I don't know, LA, Washington, and they come and they buy a team and they set that down as their base. If you're to go to, honestly, at this point, a vast majority of major football clubs, soccer clubs around Europe, of the, those that aren't kind of member-owned, like Bayern Munich or Barcelona, um, of those that aren't owned by American billionaires of the same ilk that we generally associate with NBA owners, or in some cases, literal NBA owners, mm-hmm. whether that be Arsenal or Aston Villa, where the books own Wes Edens as a part owner. Honestly, the majority of the major teams at this point are owned by states. <laughs> like, there's no other way to put it that way. Uh, PSG, Paris Saint-Germain, the Club of Qatar, um, Newcastle United, now the Club of Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. uh, Manchester City, the Club of Abu Dhabi. And Manchester City are really the example for this, the most interesting example. One, just because of the level of success that um, Abu Dhabi have had with Manchester City and transforming a club that was a perennial struggler, spent a lot of recent decades below the top tier of English football, very much in the shadow of its city rival, Manchester United, and are now... um, just maybe the most unstoppable force in sports. I'm that, not present. I don't don't feel I mean, like I'm exaggerating at that. Um, played a game in Lambeau Field in the summer. Too. That's also true. And against Bayern Munich, which you could not have two more polar opposite structures and ownership setups and even fan environments for, for two clubs and for two powers like that. Like In that comparison, Bayern Munich very much of the Green Bay Packers ilk. Mm-hmm. Um, and not a whole lot of teams left like that in professional football. But in part, the reason, as was widely reported at the time for Abu Dhabi's interest in Manchester City, um, was how do we best promote the interests of Abu Dhabi? How do we best promote it as a tourism destination? How do we best up our profile, um, kind of energize our business efforts? create valuable contacts and generally establish it as a place that is a hub for sports, for culture and business in the Middle East, that it can be your one-stop shop, it can be your gateway and that you can't do business through New York or London or Tokyo without also having to kind of pass through Abu Dhabi. And like to be completely fair on that, the Abu Dhabi ownership group, they have transformed Manchester City Football Club, which is to the great joy of Manchester City fans. They have invested meaningfully in surrounding areas in Manchester. There have been regeneration projects, not entirely uncontroversial, but that a lot of people would say have done 
real good for the city um, that have come from the efforts of the club. I guess in some ways in a not dissimilar kind of fashion to, but maybe larger in scope to the Deer District in terms of, mm. okay, how can we how can we spark something in this area of the city to make it a place where people gather, where businesses can thrive and where there is this center point of the sports team? Beyond that, though, I mean, there are the concerns where the money comes from. And all of the questions that we're talking about in this instance are there to be seen. There are the concerns of if you're someone who's a lifelong fan of Manchester City and have spent your life supporting this team that to you just represented your identity and your locality and your friends and your family. Erling Haaland is ripping Manchester United limb from limb in the Manchester Derby at the weekend. And what do you see for most of the game? At the Etihad, the name of the stadium. Um, also the name of the arena the books are going to play in. What you see is visit Abu Dhabi on two-tiered advertising boards. The only club I can think of in the Premier League with these two-tiered, almost walled advertising boards. As Erling Haaland is wheeling off in celebration and those photos and video are being beamed around the world, visit Abu Dhabi is everywhere. And that is the goal of that. And it's complicated. And it's, what are you being used as a fan? What are you being used as a viewer to push, to promote? And what say have you got in it? I think one of the most complicated elements of this is the fan has no say. Honestly, the fan has no say. We are powerless on this. And I think the only thing that really can be done and should be done is that it doesn't become something that's about politics. It doesn't become something that's tribal. That just everyone owns the situation and talks about it responsibly and sensibly and like adults and considers the vast mess that is professional sports in the modern age. And if any of the listeners are familiar with sports washing and it's not true, the likes of Manchester City or Paris Saint-Germain, there's a very good chance that it's, I guess, the recent encroachment on American sports has come in the form of the PGA Tour and the, the foundation of Live Golf, the Saudi investment fund um their venture into professional golf fronted by the one and only greg norman that has made a lot Zach. of noise yes <laughs> made a lot of noise caused a lot of controversy and in kind of i'm a massive massive golf fan i watch a lot of pj tour golf in observing the discourse from afar I have been struck by the, uh, these are conversations that had to happen in the UK 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And it's only happening now. And that has made me think, it's like, well, where's the next step? Like, where is the next step? And particularly if something like that takes off, the goal of live is, is clear. How do you get to the rich and powerful? How do you get to the business class, the political class? What do they love? They love golf. Uh, so let's start a golf league. They're not worried about turning a profit. They can throw vast sums of money at it because money means nothing. And it, it's about enhancing their image globally, having these showcase events at the end of a season for as much as you have all of the, the golf courses owned by a former American president that Liv will step off on throughout the season. Oh, they, they will not finish their season in a lot of those places. They'll go to Jeddah in Saudi Arabia and everyone will see 
the pomp and circumstance around it. Like that is that is the vision. And who can you get? You can get influential figures to come on board. And all of a sudden, Saudi Arabia goes from being a peripheral voice and place in the Western world to something much more central. It's the same core thing that happens at Abu Dhabi here. I don't know to what effect this will ever take hold in American sports. I would struggle to imagine one of these Gulf states or kind of a sovereign wealth fund belonging to a Gulf state deciding we're buying an NFL franchise. And I do think that will be the moment where if they were to do that, uh, a lot of voices would chime up and maybe even some voices who are on the side of live golf might feel differently if an NFL team was suddenly to be owned by Saudi Arabia or UAE or Qatar or any other country in that region, really. Um, I think if it's to happen, I think basketball is an obvious target. And the NBA has already had its dalliances with international owners. There was the Russian oligarch Mikhail Prokhorov who owned the Brooklyn Nets. That was largely an unsuccessful venture and in the end became a little bit messy as the handover happened. I don't know what that means for the NBA's appetite. Honestly, I don't know to what extent their own rules and regulations, the say of the Board of Governors, would protect against something that was very lucrative for everyone or if their interests would prevent them from even stepping in in that case. Um, but also change the face of the league. And when the Bucks and Hawks are going to Abu Dhabi to play two games, this could be the beginning of something bigger. It could be the beginning of something bigger. It could be a once-off event. But regardless, it is the NBA and it is the Bucks joining all of these other kind of, I don't know, notches on the bedpost of Abu Dhabi. They could say, look, we had... Giannis Antetokounmpo here, global superstar, Nike ambassador. Um, we had the NBA here. Look at the, I there will be NBA legends will be there. I don't know is like Hakeem Olajuwon and Dikembe Mutombo are usually ever present at these events. I don't know if they'll be at this event. I don't know Great what question. thought process that goes into all of that from their point of view. Again, is anyone thinking? And part of this too, I'm. I'm very much aware that there is only so much that can be done now that the game is to be played. They've agreed to go and the teams are there. Um, I don't think it would be the smartest move as much as I would admire it for the Bucks to take to the court on Thursday or on Saturday, head to toe in rainbow colors, holding up placards. Like I, I don't think that is, uh, <laughs> it's not a good idea. It's, it's not a good idea. Honestly, it's not safe. Um, but when they come back will they be asked questions well what will people say about it Um, are we just going to get a very clean purely sanitized version of events that is also going to use all the language of the state and are these games are they really for us as fans overseas are they for fans in Abu Dhabi or is this purely a publicity stunt um, to advertise something completely different to kind of put forth the greater good of the UAE. I don't begrudge the UAE having an opportunity to have NBA games there. Mm-hmm. I just think it is something that maybe if the NBA was to agree to that, there should have been greater dialogue at a negotiation stage of, we'd love to do that, we'd love to come here, but here are some things that are important to us 
and you're stressing a desire to become a more progressive and equitable society, can we talk about that? Can we put on clinics? Can we have workshops where we, I don't know, preach greater tolerance? What are players free to speak about? What causes can they support when they're there? There is no evidence to this point that we're going to get anything along those lines. I would be very surprised if we do. But I do think there is a way where you can give people their opportunity and you can say there are lots of concerns here, but we're going to take you at your word and we're going to operate in good faith and let's together do something that is beneficial for both parties and for the people who live there, which is kind of the crux of this. Like, this is something that is just going to go on. The cameras go on, the cameras go off. We all go back about our life. There are countless people living there to various different circumstances, whether it's because of their gender, their sexual orientation, their migrant status. And to purely treat this as just a basketball game and to only talk about the X and O's of a preseason game where we're probably going to see, I don't know, Santa Man and Jordan Wara play 30 minutes, to me would just feel disingenuous and not really what we're about. I mean, I think that is the stated goal uh, probably of the NBA and of Abu Dhabi here, but I think to take it seriously ourselves and to hopefully um, speak to a place where you as listeners and books fans are like, no, I respect that. Like there, there is a lot more to this game and it's a complicated situation. And whether you give any thought to it beyond that, whether you honestly care about it, I don't think, I don't think that is the most significant thing. I think the most significant thing is hearing it all out. And when this game takes place, being fully aware, because you made reference to what the broadcast could be like, the commentary is going to be like, we're not going to hear a lot of that. And honestly, if we do, I, we, we could, we could be hearing what borders on propaganda. Like, so time will tell. Um, there is an opportunity here for good that I am skeptical as to how much the NBA will put in place to allow that to happen. But it is a very, very complicated couple of games that the Milwaukee Bucks find themselves tied up in. And that's honestly without us even touching on a fraction of the kind of the global concerns here and areas we could go to. But in terms of what's relevant to the Bucks, freedom of expression from all of their protests on various topics at this point around the state of Milwaukee, even from we want to go back to when Sterling Brown Mm -hmm. Um, had his incident of police brutality as a player and how the book supported him in speaking out and how important that was that's in stark contrast to what you're going to find here the treatment of women is in very stark contrast to the books as an organization and the NBA as a whole like let's take even recent events into account of what you're looking to say is acceptable and how people should be treated and beyond that the one that I, I do think I find toughest to stomach if this just goes off without any comment and then we're back to normal and the books are kind of loud about a pride night later in the season. It's like, great. I'm glad you're doing that. But <laughs> what about what about the people in UAE who that applies to? Where were you then? So I don't know, Jordan, any, any final thoughts on that or will we move on to some basketball stuff? No, I, I, I just think ultimately this is whether this could just be a germ of not germ, but like the start of something, a yearly tradition, 
It's not just that the fact that the NBA has global games, but what if we start seeing a regular game held in Abu Dhabi every preseason? Or what if they eventually have it during the regular season? Two teams uh, playing I think that's regular. possibly agreed. Like when they talk about a multi-year partnership that obviously is tied to visit Abu Dhabi, I would be surprised if it doesn't include two teams going back next year, the year after that, etc. Yeah. Um, so you have that element, but also this is just the start. Like, I know you, you mentioned like sports washing is a general kind of, I don't know. It's a topic that has yet to be mined in a very real way here. I think the overall idea just kind of applies to we as a society of where technology is, we have the ability to follow where the money goes in, mm-hmm. from organizations. <clears throat> um, and, and honestly, Jordan, what I'll say on that is a non-American is I think American sports fans are very diligent on that front and you only have yes. to look at like Robert Sarver recently in the Phoenix Suns, but there there is a really strong track record, even in Milwaukee, where it hasn't necessarily been problematic in that way, but of just holding ownership accountable. It's like you're coming in and you're taking control of this thing, which is essentially, you know, a public asset. This is our community piece of pride. It's what we all gather together for. I, I do think American sports fans generally demand a lot of ownership and are very critical when standards are not met on a whole variety of ways. I mean, I can I can think of all sorts of teams and conversations around it from the MLB season this year around the subject of pride and players' own decisions in regard to what they would wear in their uniforms and what they wouldn't wear in their uniforms. And then the kind of the knock-on effect of that, the fallout from that. Like... I do think that is something that American fans more than probably like from a base point soccer fans in Europe are, are mindful of and are quite demanding of because of the ownership models in place where if that was to change and all of a sudden your owner is someone from a sovereign kind of wealth fund or a royal family member from the other side of the world who you never see, you never hear from and the decisions made for a team are not necessarily like rooted in your community or visibly in your best interest anymore. That's a complex thing that may be the future of American sports. Like that reckoning may come like it did. Well, I think in Europe, it's, it's the fact that the, someone can purchase the team and they move them. Which is, that is a wrinkle that is it's honestly uniquely American. Um, Not a concern really. Like you buy a a football club, it does happen. They can yeah. move, but it generally only happens if the fans aren't there. And most of the, the clubs are old enough that their fan base is built in. We know the anxiety as Bucks fans that existed for a long time before the team's future in Milwaukee was secured. If someone with yeah. no attachment to Milwaukee, and I don't just mean someone from New York was to come in, I'd be like, oh, great, I own this team. Milwaukee, what's that? Why don't I put this team in? Vegas, why can't they, why can't they have a team there? Seattle, is that not a better market? Why can't I put a team there? That is also another Atlanta. Um, no, I, and I think too, as you mentioned, I think Milwaukee and Wisconsin are uniquely equipped to have this happen, just based on history, but also the fact that 
the signature franchise in the states yes is packers and it's the opposite of how <laughs> it's to, it's totally antithetical to how ownership structures are in place across every league in north america um so i think that's where again we see these these you know snapshots or you could follow the trail of where money goes from the organization the owners that represent these teams and own these teams and all this stuff and it's never good it's always messy it's it's it yeah. flies to the face i mean some of these owners have high political uh or have had high political uh positions too look at the magic um with the DeVos family so like look at the magic yeah look at the magic so like I think that's where it's like but even like uh, none of this because that's a good point none of this is to this is not a (laughs) I can already sense you know the the what about is of Jordan what about the money from here this is not to say that the money in American sports or American society general is clean like money can be dirty in a whole variety of ways but there is also um, for example, someone who they made their money in finance, we'll say, for the sake of argument, you peel back the layers on that, and there's a victim somewhere down that line. There's someone who's losing money or possibly losing their home for someone else to have that great gain at the opposite end of the scale. But the current structure in place, teams are a status symbol. And I think that is that is a really crucial difference. Billionaires do not necessarily buy a team to represent their business interests. They buy the team because they want to own a sports team because they grew up loving this sport and they want to have a team of their own. And that is largely still the structure in place in American sports, which is so removed from this kind of foreign investor, whether it's viewing a team as an asset, viewing it team as a political tool or viewing a team as a gateway to greater influence and power as a way to access millions of fans around the world whatever it could be like it it is so far removed the one one last thing i want to say on this which is kind of unrelated to the meat of what we've talked about so far and more closely tied to just the idea of growing the game at global games um i just increasingly i'm not taking this seriously global games growing the game because the nba needs to actually act more progressively on that what do i mean by that i mean your three biggest stars three of your biggest stars are from countries in europe who have never seen nba action maybe belgrade in his former yugoslavia at some point there might have been an exhibition a preseason game um but never been nba action in greece Never been NBA action in Slovenia. I understand, and I've brought this topic up before, and I've heard from pretty Greek fans who say, look, logistically, it's impossible. There isn't a place you can do this. This will be a problem in this place. It'll be a problem here. My counter to that is the NBA have the means to overcome that if they really want to, particularly for a oh, preseason, yeah. for a preseason setting. And preseason is within the team's control, and it is the time where they really should do more of this focus on growing their game um australia stands out to me as one of the most ardent markets of nba fans 
We know that over the years, we have a significant listenership from Australia. Australian players have been a key part of the book story over the past mm-hmm. decade plus. It's so far away. <laughs> we know that. You can't get off to Australia for a regular season game, come back three days later and be playing again. It doesn't work like that. Preseason is where you have the flexibility to build a schedule around that and say, look, this is important. It's important because there is a generation there. There is also, let's be honest, a pipeline of players and player production that is coming from there that you can continue to grow and develop and it continue to fuel your more interesting, more diverse league that you now get to take pride in. There are countless other countries. Uh, The Philippines, not entirely without its own complications in a political sense in recent years, I don't know if there are many countries, again, with a more rabid NBA fan base in the Philippines. Um, NBA games in Tokyo have always been very successful as a way to get into the Asian market. The NBA is not going to be going to China anytime soon, but in a time where that was something they did, I think, again, the the logic of it was very clear and understandable, particularly in Yao Ming's time and in the aftermath of mm-hmm. Yao Ming's time, where you have one of the biggest superstars in the country coming from that country. Did you have something on that? Well, I think that's an interesting comparison to where we are right now. There isn't the homegrown element of someone from the United Arab Emirates, Emirates, sorry, um, or Abu Dhabi who's in the league, not by my uh, estimation. But China was so key to the NBA growing globally um, to the extent that they have so far. And again, they, you, they profited off of that and used that to, even with knowing how uh, things went awry a couple of years ago with the whole Dara Mori incident and all this stuff going on and, and how the relationship is seemingly restored, but it's, still obviously frayed well very very much very much fraud and i mean that is another example of a place where human rights concerns and violations were just you know brushed aside by the nba for the point of business the nba is not alone in that um but you just (laughs) sports is not movies is is honestly kind of it's not movies it's not music it's not tv i think it's one thing when you're like there's this new blockbuster movie for example i think one of the most successful movies in the history of china uh, along with the wider world but the two things are not like unconnected is avatar Mm. and hollywood films no longer generally make their way to china it is believed avatar's sequel will get a release in china interesting now at a time when american culture is being blocked out that manages to make its way true that's fine. Maybe even more so than a lot of other things. You've got blue people, Jordan, on screen. Not the blue man group before you make the joke. Um, you've got actors who largely will be unrecognizable and they can be viewed as something completely detached from ideas of what's you Chinese, can... what's American. Exactly. When you send you take... the Milwaukee Bucks and the Atlanta Hawks to a place, they're carrying with them those cities, the values of those communities, they are filled with rosters that now are increasingly built up of players from all around the world with a variety of different cultural backgrounds and concerns. And it's just different. 
And it's where the NBA just brushing these things aside, like other businesses can and do and get away with more readily. It's not that simple. It really isn't. And I, as someone who lives internationally, I would love to see the NBA continue to prioritize making its product more international. I do think they need to democratize it more. And with the minimal games that take place overseas and in preseason, I think a game in Abu Dhabi is more of a problem when you're not, for example, going to Australia, if there's not a game in Sydney or Melbourne, um, if you're not having a game in London or Madrid or Berlin or other kind of just strongholds for the league where you want to continue mm-hmm. to build on your existing fan base and influence, like there is room. You've got 30 teams and in preseason, no one cares. Like no one cares at home. No one's like, Oh, I don't get to see the preseason games there overseas. It's the time to do it. And I'd like to see the league be more creative at it. But while they don't do that, these choices will continue to be scrutinized even more for where they're going, where they're sending their product and why they're doing so. Okay. That's pretty comprehensive. All that for those of you who did listen, we appreciate it. Uh, we just think it's important to address. I wouldn't feel comfortable hosting Milwaukee books podcast, or we just completely skip by all of that because it is part of the story this week. And again, there are real people, real people living there who are going to be there during these games, beyond the games and if this is an opportunity for kind of just wider awareness and education on that and for people to cast an eye and look for what is hopefully going to be continued progress, well, let's make sure we take that opportunity. Mm-hmm. On Saturday, the Milwaukee Bucks lost to the Memphis Grizzlies, as I mentioned, well, it feels like days ago now, Jordan. <laughs> um, the game is not important. I have watched half of the game. You have watched none of the game. Mm-hmm. So we're not going to talk about that game in detail. It would be disingenuous of us, Jordan. Um, I was busy researching other things in recent days. It was probably apparent. So my my full attention was, you know, also more on the Milwaukee Brewers and the sadness that came with that than it was the Milwaukee Bucks when this game took place. Um, the big story to emerge from this game, though, and it really is a big story for the Bucks, is that acting head coach <laughs> Charles Lee who uh, let's let's just get up, out up front uh, I don't know if Charles Lee is ever going to be allowed to speak to anyone ever again uh, but with Mike Budenholzer still recovering from his own offseason surgery um, Charles Lee was acting head coach for the game and after the game he opened up about some changes the books are making to their defensive scheme their mm. approach for this season um do you think Jordan you got him a telling off from Bud? I like to think um Bud right now, considering he had his leg operated. What was it an ankle? Something? I, I can't remember. It was his leg. It was yeah. I just want to think of him as, as like Jimmy Stewart in rear window. He's got the binoculars. It's just like, what is Charles saying? <laughs> I'm thinking was... more Dante the Vincenzo you... zooming around on the scooter. Oh yeah. But he's like, what are you talking about our defense? No, do not do not share any state secrets within the Bucks organization. But Charles Lee did reveal that an increasing emphasis for the Bucks is limiting three-point attempts this season. Honestly, a little shocked by this because it feels like it's the thing that 
you know, we've talked most about possibly across the entire history of this podcast at this point. Um, because even when the book's defense has been at its most dominant, the visceral nature of giving up open three pointers has frequently flooded our mailbag with questions about it, led to outrage from our listeners and on occasion from ourselves. And it seems possible that what happened in game seven of last year's playoff series against All the Boston series. Celtics, particularly game seven, though, yeah. um, was the straw that broke the camel's back. And But I said, no more. I will not continue to watch this team give up 35 May trees a game. We're going to do something about it. Um my my honestly, my gut reaction to this is one, I think this is good, but I also think it's a lot more complicated than just the oh, they're changing your defense, the focus is now trees, and how it works in practice and how exactly they implement it is gonna be very interesting to see. But what was your reaction when you you heard this news? Were you surprised? Hard not to be surprised just because it is just a core element of what is Bucks basketball? I mean, that was kind of the joke for a long time. Um, even amid them winning it all, uh, a year, more than a year ago at this point, there was this like, oh, that's just what you get. You have to give them something. You can't, you know, can't defend every three. You can't contest every three, and it's all about the 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 shape. The uh, integrity of the defense and what they have prioritized and all that stuff and just the yada, yada, yada. But I do think and how Eric Dame's article and I think even the quotes from Bud, I think just the fact how last year went and you're without Brooke for the majority of it and it kind of just opens your eyes to, okay, the anchor is gone and the reason why you built your defense the way you did when you came to Milwaukee and when Brooke was signed and all this stuff, that's gone. And trying to replicate that or try to, you know, well, go full look, it's, it's not God. That's something. No, no, I, mean, like, I get sense, what you mean. It wasn't there yeah. last season. And also if we're being pragmatic about it, not the worst idea for them to begin planning and developing a comfort in a system that may not center around a player like that. Because I guess, as they've already found, um, Brook Lopez's do not grow on trees and they may no. not just be able to one afford or even find the player who's just going to replicate what he's been to the books. If as soon as the end of the season, they decide that Brook Simon Milwaukee is at an end. Yeah. So I think there is definitely some uh, being proactive on their part is part of why they have thought this through. But I th- again, I think it's just going through that that odyssey of not having Brooke in, involved or playing and just seeing you can't expect the same level of defensive capabilities from this team without him. And just plugging in, playing, and, you know, expecting that they can 
I don't think they expected to be a top tier defense. I think they just expected that it wouldn't be as bad as it was just because they, that from the get go, they viewed that side of the floor as unlocking the potential of the roster of, of Giannis, of Chris, of the players that were still held over from kid to bud with a a little bit of prunty in the middle of that. (laughs) So it is, it is a very, it's very interesting to see. And especially with like, you know, the coaching staff is changing. Darvin Ham is not there. That's, that was Bud's right-hand man for 10 years, both Atlanta and Milwaukee. Um, we're, I'm worth noting he's already uh, been vocal about implementing Bucks principles, the quadrants, and the dunker spot all, all in place for the Lakers already. And yeah. like, likely some of the defensive principles carried over there too. I mean, Darvin Ham at this point, sure, he played under George Carl, notably. Um, he did have a spell in the Lakers staff early in his career. He had his time in what was then the yeah, D League. Um, but the vast majority of his coaching career is with Bud, and that is really the principles that he has grown to know and also experienced real success with as a coach. Yeah. So I, I don't think that is insignificant in this too, where guys like Charles Lear and Patrick St. Andrews, they're having more elevated voices or they're having more an elevated influence, as you say, in the team strategy and just overall decisions. Do you think it's um, possible the players have also had a more? I That, uh, that is a key thing, too. And that there, was, was a, there was a quote in Eric Name's article from Drew Holiday about it's not fun seeing you know opposing teams just rain trees on you. That is not fun to be a part of. And that could just be something Drew Holiday has said, because it's undoubtedly true. But I do wonder if that is also a conversation that was had internally in locker rooms at points throughout last season. And again, particularly when the season came to its end and in the fashion that it did. Like, is that something that there has been a mutual kind of understanding that this is where things need to evolve? Like, we have to move with this now. I, I definitely think that is key. Um, again, this is year three of Drew being in Milwaukee. They made a point of talking about how, or Bud made a point of how this is the uh, most continuity or most guys he's seen year over year in camp throughout his, however long he's been in the NBA and coaching teams. So I definitely think having as much uh, continuity year over year, I think that has played an effective you know, you're going to be leaning on your guys to see what they're comfortable with and where they think that they can evolve their overall style of play. Um, I think it's, yeah, it's all, it's the confluence of factors and just knowing for all the, for all the, you know, the rap that Bud gets historically and he doesn't adjust, he doesn't do this and doesn't do that, which it's it's proven to not be true. It's not, not even remotely true. Like yeah. at, at this point, and honestly, I this feeds into where I'm at on this, which is I think people are going to get carried away and take this as something bigger than it is in some ways, because on the whole, this is just the last wrinkle to add to their defense that makes their defense genuinely as versatile as possible. 
if they have the ability to do this and execute well, and they can play drop, and they're comfortable at switching, all of a sudden you have your bases covered defensively in a way that this team did not three or four years ago when they were the masters of one thing and people managed to catch on to it, adjust and get the better of the books. I I think that as the season progresses, we will just see this more to be a piece of what they do rather than the sum of the parts of the defense. And that's a good idea because um, I think even the example in one of the clips that Eric name had in his athletic article and going through these quotes and detailing it in practice showed how the books were defending the pick and roll and how Brooke was essentially staying with both men and just backing himself. And he is still a very, very large man who knows how to defend the rim better than just about anyone in the NBA, trusting himself. And with that discipline, you're not having Bobby Portis or Grayson Allen scrambling off to provide help. And what Eric noted is whether that is the same if it's a pick and roll in December with John Morant and Jaron Jackson is a different question. And that's a good question. And in that scenario, maybe it should not be. But I think the books continue to evolve defensively, give themselves all those options and be able to adjust to the various challenges that come their way and the different types of personnel. Like what this could eliminate which I really think has been the bane of most books fans' existence over the Bud era. I don't think this changes necessarily how you might defend a Jason Tatum and that you might say, okay, well, if you want to fire away from tree and it's going to bog everything else down, we're open to that. What it might do away with is the Jay Crowder sorts who have tormented the books over the years. Graham Williams... Yes, uh, an option that is there and an ability mm-hmm. to read and react where there is greater discipline, greater recognition in who is my man? Is this a man I want to stick with? Is this someone that there's a need for me to do this or do that? And we might see a books defense that I think is honestly just smarter. Like that's that's my takeaway with this. If you add this this tool to your arsenal, they, they can do everything to some extent. Um, the one thing, I'll be upfront with this, I do not believe it. Probably not the best way to set this up, but to play devil's advocate for a moment. If they were to really commit to this, and it was to become something of their core principle for the year ahead, is it possible that there would be an element of over, overreaction there based on a season where they didn't have Brook for most of the year, so I what was it? They were 19th, I think, in defensive rating. Um, I definitely think they had regressed significantly, but I don't know if that's really an accurate reflection of where they're at with that scheme, if things are better. Is it like, is it something where trying to execute what they have in the past with Bobby Portis to Brooke Lopez? Like, to me, that's not surprising to drop off. Also, a factor in this, which whether it improves or stays the same or even regresses this year. Grayson Allen coming into the team and how Grayson Allen differs from uh, Wesley Matthews in the past or even Dante. He wasn't or, in camp to start last year either. That's true. And even someone like George Hill in his earlier years when he played a greater role. Very different player, very different profile as a defender. Part of this may be adjusting to those guys. I also do think one of the unforeseen circumstances of this, if you're more disciplined and you're playing man-to-man, there's much more individual responsibility than the books have had in years. 
And you could have certain players that this does not work out well for and who could look very, very bad very, very often. Because we talk about, you know, the system was designed with Brooke as an anchor. And I think over the years, kind of mistakenly, that has become a conversation of, oh, it was built around Brooke's strengths. Because obviously, if you're playing this way, well, that would be exposing Brooke's weaknesses and the team falls apart. I think part of why they've played to Brooke's strengths is that Brooke's strengths defensively are so overwhelming that when you combine him with Giannis as a backline, you can make up for the mistakes that a lot of your perimeter players are going to make. Um, honestly, that's pretty much all perimeter players, non-Drew Holiday category on this team. Wes Matthews applies for two. Um, but I do wonder then when seeing, okay, your job is to deny the ball to that guy to make sure he doesn't get the space to get a shot off, to not overhelp, to stay disciplined with your position and your assignment, does that does that favor? Does that bring more out of uh, Grayson Allen or Bobby Portis, or does it hurt them? I don't think the answer to that is one that's set in stone. So there's a part of me playing devil's advocate here of, could this be an overcorrection? Could this be something that they're taking on from a season that was far from normal from them that didn't give them the chance to put their best defensive foot forward. I don't think that's a factor unless like this is the defense and this is only it. And we don't see drop at all. And we don't see them switch as much. And it's really just about, okay, everyone is going to deny the three point shot and we're going to trust Brooke to handle a lot more pick and roll and different looks in that than we had in the past. Parts that will work. Parts that will free up Giannis as a weak side shot blocker to maybe be more impactful too. But I do wonder if the trickle down means individual defensive errors become even more apparent than in the past when everyone is overhelping and you're just like, the whole thing is crumbling. Like over the mm. years, I feel we've done a whole lot of the books three-point defense, the books three-point defense, and not as much player X's defense here if that makes sense, which I do think this change would open up much greater accountability, which could be a good and a bad thing. And I wonder how that ultimately plays out for some of the guys that I don't know if we're concerned about defensively, but we understand there is maybe need for greater care for guys who are not Giannis Drew and Brooke on this team in setting up your defense than there is for those three all defensive caliber players. Yeah, it's instead of the defend as one approach, it's defend one on one, or you know that kind of thing. I, I think again, I don't think this is the Jair Alexander one. would love it, Jordan. That's that's what I get. Exactly. This, this yeah. is this is <laughs> this is uh, this is a shot right at Joe Barry's heart that the principles Joe Barry <laughs> holds dear to. Um, no, I, I I don't think this is overcorrect. I mean, it's this. This is not the end of the Bucks losing and giving up 23 point makes in a game or all that stuff. It's, I don't think, again, this is going to be an evolving story and it's going to be even a greater emphasis now that Charles Lee has um, put it out there. Keep putting uh, the microphone in the man's face. That's all I'm going yeah, to say. Chuck Lee. Ask him about injuries next. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> How's Bud doing? Yeah, no. Um, surgery is successful. He's rehabbing. No, I, I do think it's just a matter of it's it's gonna be it's gonna bounce around. There's gonna be good nights. There's gonna be bad nights, and it's just a matter of 
what overall positives or negatives are you to gleam and is this are they going to continue to evolve this is this going to be you know they hone on this at first and then it's just a matter of can people continue to buy in over the course of the season i don't think it's also i think again they're playing to the to the strengths of the team i think as you mentioned of getting Brooke and how that it wasn't just a matter of having an anchor and playing to his strengths. It unlocked Giannis's unique abilities to do everything defensively. And he's, it's not that he's a master of none jack of all trades. It's just that the fact that he can be used in so many different ways, it was that it, it played to the fact of okay, they're not putting him on Kawhi when they're the the series is getting out from under them against the Raptors in the conference finals. Same in the bubble and all this stuff. It takes you have to go through those things to really learn and to see if they're comfortable. You know what I mean? Like you kind of have to buy into where they are in their program and all that stuff. The fact that we as we talked about many times we we view the Giannis Chris story it's overlaps with Jason Kidd but since Bud has been there they've had the success they've gone through these you know terrible downs and obviously they have felt the greatest highs that you could ever feel so well they, they haven't gone through terrible downs under Bud no but I, I mean the agony of those defeats have have yeah have reverberated. I know but let's at least you feel something Jordan. That is very true. Like the terrible downs are what this franchise had to deal with for a long time, where no one feels anything, where you're just numb inside. So just just on a perspective there, I as, as much as much as I really felt the pain of that loss to the Celtics, better than not feeling anything at all. It's very true. Uh, better to make the playoffs um, than it is not to, I guess. Um, what was my point with this? Oh. So it's just a matter of building further and further and getting Drew and obviously adding PJ and just kind of fortifying a starting unit or, you know, playing with what little that they had beyond their starting lineup on their way to a title. And it can just be as little as like, okay, we have guys like Javon Carter. We have, we picked up Wesley Matthews midseason. He turned out to be, you know, kind of was the perfect band-aid that they needed. Drafting Marjan and kind of, you know, what is he capable of doing? Are we going to trust him into to, you know, develop in the old Bucks way, or is this going to be the new Bucks way of how they unlock someone's defensive capa- capabilities? I think it's as much as it we're going to glom onto and it's going to be a big storyline all the all throughout the season. I think it's just going to evolve and into maybe something different and as you said before more versatile what we see from the Bucks defensively yeah and it is something that we can only judge over the course of the season we'll see the good and the bad of it essentially when they make decisions like this as we've seen in the past it is with the goal of okay come playoff time are they best equipped to be the defensive version of themselves they need to be to get to a conference finals, to win a conference finals, to win a championship. And that's honestly what it's all about. 
and they could spend all regular season doing this and then if they end up falling back on drop and it's successful I, no one's gonna care there's not a problem but it it is a logical evolution it is the one thing that has been missing from the defense and honestly even just there i think we talked about this when they really started to play more drop to are more switching too. the books in a prior form and i guess the first really great coach bud form of the books were an incredibly predictable team and this would be a step towards being a very unpredictable team that are much harder to game plan for and that would operate from a place where when you come to game to game kind of adjustments in a series that the books could have the upper hand and being like, we can be the more progressive side in making decisions here because we have more options in doing this. And I also think worth mentioning here is you can only do this because of the continuity. Mm-hmm. This is not, this is not a decision that most teams around the NBA can make. You can't be like, okay, well, kind of, we've got drop banked. We've got switch banked. We've mastered those. And now we're going to put our focus on limiting three-point shots because most teams around the NBA, majority of your guys are brand new to the team. So they've got to get on the one page to begin with. The coach probably hasn't been around very long, or if he has, he could be gone very soon. Like this is kind of where the inbuilt advantages of the book stability could come to the fore that they have different options that just aren't, it's not feasible with the amount of time at coach's disposal for other teams to do that. They don't have the chemistry. They don't have the understanding. They don't have the know-how. They don't have the shared experience. It's, yes, that is the key. And especially for a veteran team. I mean, look at the Sixers. I mean, Doc Rivers takes over for Brett Brown. This is his third year. And look at how many changes that they've gone through personnel-wise in just three years. You know what I mean? Yeah, you've got that, Joel and B just looking around, being like, "Who am I playing with this year?" Is like that's the essentially, yeah. It's this is not normal, and it's it's part of why this era of Bucks basketball is so special. Is that you have, you know, the same faces, the same faces leading the team. Obviously, this is Drew's third year, but when you have the attachment of winning and NBA title in your first season in Milwaukee and all that stuff like it grows even further but like they this is what the Bucks have wanted for a long time and you don't take it for granted when those opportunities come along and it whether it's informed by be as close as they were against the Celtics and falling in game seven and not seeing those same Celtics or seeing, seeing that same Celtics team go to the finals and you just think like you know, if Chris is healthy, well, how does that change the series or all these unanswerable questions that doesn't change reality? Ultimately, where the Bucks are at right now and the fact that they have the same coach and largely the same, uh, you know, uh, a nucleus of, of players that have been there from the beginning to when Bud arrived and having Drew come in and stuff like that, like, Again, this is not normal. This is unique to the opportunity that they have right now. It's probably also the only way you can be successful with a franchise in Milwaukee in the modern NBA. So we'll see how we'll play out this season. To wrap up, um, the NBA's general managers think that it will play out pretty well for the Milwaukee Bucks. Uh, John Schumann of NBA.com released his annual GM survey 
um, on was it Tuesday? Yeah, on yes. Tuesday he released it, um, where he asks GMs around the league fifty different questions to essentially take their temperature going into the new season. The books with forty three percent of the vote, Jordan came out on top as the answer to the question, which team will win the 2023 NBA Finals? As Schumann notes, that is the first time in the history of the survey um, that the books have topped that particular poll. So, expectations? High? Um, Not a surprise. Although I do wonder how that will carry over and if we'll feel that kind of noise because that was not there last year, even when the Bucks were defending champions. I suspect it won't be this year. I think that honestly has its upsides and its downsides. I think last year the Bucks maybe could have done with more of the noise of, oh, I don't know. Maybe we should start Jordan like saying their championship was fake for some reason. And hope <laughs> hope that word gets back to the team and there's a pressure. I like I I don't know. I just there's there is probably an element of pressure that really should have been there wasn't there last year that i do think they could benefit from so that that is something interesting to begin with whether the media conversation follows suit with that i'm gonna guess it won't i'm gonna guess we're gonna hear a lot of talk about the clippers the warriors and the celtics um although the celtics tough spot for them but i still think going into the season we'll hear a lot of that the nets obviously without having to make major trades it seems like they may have had to this summer um, they will factor into that. But for GMs, the books top the poll. Meanwhile, Giannis was voted second most likely to win MVP with 34% of the vote behind Luka Doncic with 48%. Giannis came out on top um, as the answer to the question of if you were starting a franchise today and could sign any player in the NBA, who would it be? Only two players received votes. Giannis got 55%. Luka Doncic got 45%. I find that interesting that like Nikola Jokic Honestly, Nikola Jokic was not very well represented in these polls at all. And maybe yeah. there's we can have a conversation about that at another time, but I don't know. I, I thought that was interesting. Um, other kind of notable areas for the books, Giannis, runaway winner, best power forward in the NBA. Sorry, LeBron James, 86% of the vote. While he also came in third for who was the best center in the NBA. So... Good for Giannis. He's just, he's the best, I guess. Let's we take from that. Um, Drew Holiday, again, receiving votes for best defensive player. And I think was second for uh, Giannis was voted as the best defensive player in the NBA. While Drew was second to Marcus Smart in best perimeter defender in the NBA. Uh, Giannis, to a point you were making a few minutes ago, voted the most versatile defender in the NBA. And one interesting one, Bud never gets any respect, any respect at all in these polls, for whatever reason that may be. Um, As for the question of who is the best assistant coach in the NBA, that was a tie between Kenny Atkinson with 34% of the vote, of course, from the Mike Budenholzer coaching tree, and Charles Lee of the Milwaukee Books, 34% of the vote, which is very interesting. Last year, this was a, a title that was shared between Kenny Atkinson and Darvin Ham with 17% of the vote each. So 34% is a lot, though, for to row behind. Kenny Atkinson is obviously, his name is out there, and he's developed respect in his own right from his time as head coach. Could have been an NBA head coach this year. But Charles Lee being that high up the pecking order is interesting. Good news for the books, until maybe it's not good news for the books. 
we'll we'll see what happens on that. Um, the GMs rate the books highly, Jordan. That's that's the takeaway here. Whether NBA fans do, whether the NBA media do, GMs really, really seem to rate the books highly going into the season. Yes, they do, and with reason. <laughs> All right, uh, that is it from us for now. We will be back next week. That's something you've heard me say in the past, and it's been untrue. But this is business time now, and Jordan and I will work it out. We'll we'll lock in, and we'll be back. We'll talk some books basketball um, next week. We'll reflect on the Abu Dhabi games and how they played out from a basketball perspective, and we'll get ready for the final two preseason games as the books will face the Chicago Bulls and the Brooklyn Nets. Of course, you don't just hear from ourselves on this feed here at the Eurostep Podcast Network. Ty and Windish and Rowan Cotty cover all things books as well on the Eurostep. So wherever you're listening to your podcast, if you're not already subscribed, make sure you subscribe um, to have all things books covered throughout the season with a big, big season for the team coming up. It's the place to lock in. Um, if maybe, maybe some people, Jordan, who have come over from another Milwaukee sports podcast on the network, maybe they're familiar with my voice. Maybe they don't generally listen to the books. Welcome, Brewers fans. Um, <laughs> the books should be the thing to, you know, heal all that ails you. That's, that's all I'll say for now. So um, whether, whether anyone's new here or whether it's people who've been on the Brewers journey with myself and Andrew, welcome. The books are here to, uh, to save us all, essentially. On that note, you should also subscribe to the rest of our podcasts around the Yourself Podcast Network. Cruising for a Bruising is the place where we talk all things Milwaukee Brewers. We will be wrapping up um, the end of the Brewers season tomorrow with a special guest who may or may not be you know, on this podcast with me right now. So to hear some Brewers talk, Cruising for a Bruising. Talk of the Tundra, that's the place for all things Green Bay Packers. Numak is an ever-present there. I believe there is also a possibility that someone who may or may not be on this podcast me right now could be on the next Talk of the Tundra. We'll see on that one. But to have all things Green Bay Packers covered, two pods a week, go subscribe to Talk of the Tundra. And lastly, make time for this, the podcast for all things pop culture and other things on the Eurocep Podcast Network. A new episode of Make Time for This, so Captured and Solid, coming very, very soon. Andrew and I will be talking about Moon Age Daydream, the fantastic david bowie documentary visual experience um, that was recently in theaters all around the world and we will be going further than that we'll be ranking our five favorite david bowie songs so you can find that and make time for this for all things eurostep podcast network whether it's to get in the discord whether it's to pick up some merch to leave us reviews whatever it might be gspn.info you can get your details on until next time, thanks again to all of you for listening. Thank you, Jordan. Thank you. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, 
deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.